What you see is what you get. Hello, my name is Pastor Chris Miller, and I am your host on the PC Speaking Podcast, where we are equipping Christians for life. Hello, and welcome back to the PC Speaking Podcast. Um, Thank you for taking the time to listen. Went to the airport this morning and picked up my son, who's been traveling overseas. He went to Albania, and then he went to the States to visit family for a while. So it's certainly good to have him back home. Um, anyway, I'm not sure how relevant that is to what we're talking about today. We've been, well, we started recently a new series uh, from Patmos to present, a vision of seven churches. And we're going to the seven churches in the book of Revelation and looking at how we might learn some lessons that we can apply to our own lives. And as we look at the book of Revelation, there's often excitement when it comes to the book of Revelation, biblical prophecy, end times prophecy. People have a lot of feelings and opinions about it. But it's all, it's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle, a puzzle that uh, we don't really know what it's going to look like when it's finished. We can look at the puzzle, we can look at the pieces, we might kind of get an idea of what it might look like. We might be able to put even put a few pieces together and get a better idea of what it looked like, but we'll never fully comprehend the entire picture until after it has been completely assembled. And for you and me, we're more pieces in the puzzle than we are people who are assembling them. And it's the Lord and time that put that together. And we can't rush that. We can't slow it down. So we're approaching this from a point of view less so of what's going to happen. We'll talk about that a little bit um, probably as we go through this, but more so we're looking at what we should be doing until Jesus returns. And in the seven churches of Asia, Jesus has given us a concise picture of how he wants us to live in whatever circumstances we may encounter until he returns. As we read through the seven churches of Asia, Uh, Jesus says, I know your works. And then he often gives instruction. He gives uh, some encouragement. He gives warnings. And we can look at these different things and yeah, learn about things that we can apply to our life as we live as believers today and equip ourselves for life as Christians. And I've noticed something. This is, well, not really a detour, I suppose. But as we get into this, I'm, I'm, wrote a little bit about this in my blog this week as well, but I've noticed, especially among younger people, and it's true for older people as well, but there are people who live in constant fear. Young people today are often very, very stressed out, um, anxious, depressed, worried. When my generation was growing up as kids, we had almost no idea of what was happening outside of our own little world. Not only did we not have an idea, we had no interest at all where, you know, today kids know everything about everything all the time. Our parents would kick us out of the house for the entire day. Kids for some families were an afterthought. I remember they used to play an ad on television right before the 10 o'clock news that said, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your kids are? They had to remind people they even had kids. Um, And the kids were pretty feral. I see pictures of kids on social media today jumping a banana seed bicycle off a ramp that would give people a heart attack. And I remember doing the same thing myself. I remember at school, there were perpetually two or three kids with an arm or a leg in a cast. Somebody was always hurting themselves in some way. I used to ride 
both uh, dirt bikes and road bikes in nothing but cut off jeans and sneakers, no shirt, no helmet. And I think it was in grade six. I had a friend who returned to school after being gone for some time. And I, and I remember asking him where he'd been. And he said he was racing his brother on motorcycles and he tried to jump a canal, but he didn't quite make it. And he had crushed his spleen and, and been in a coma for a little while. And interestingly enough, that conversation wasn't that unusual. I could go on and on about kids I grew up with who had near-death stories. But one of the big advantages we had um, was the way we connected with other people and other kids. And in some ways, our lack of of connection was actually an advantage. We didn't use the phone much because it was attached to the wall and your entire family heard your phone conversation. Definitely wasn't mobile. And if you're old enough to remember that, it's, uh, yeah, you just didn't have any kind of private interaction on the phone because everybody could hear what you were saying. We, in my house, I remember when I was young, we even had a party line, which we had multiple people using the same phone line, uh, people up and down the road we lived on, I assume. But the great majority of contact we had with other people was in person. And we had very little knowledge about what was going on in the next town, let alone what was happening on the other side of the world. And I remember when I was a kid, when the news would come off, I'd come on and say, oh, this is so boring. I don't want to watch this. And I'd go do something else. So when I was growing up, we we were often physically maimed because we were outside and very active, but we didn't have much to worry about. We didn't think about the same things that kids think about today. And today, kids know everything about everything all the time. And we have so much information available and you know that affects how they think, how they feel, it shapes their mind. And I don't think we've yet learned how to deal with all of this information that we constantly have available to us. And the internet has its positives, but it also has its negatives. And many people are still learning that search engines and social media algorithms show us just show us more of what we want to see, more of what we're looking for. So almost every one of us is being overfed whatever we might be searching for. And many people are trying to process an unrealistic and yeah, an unrealistic amount of doom and gloom. Even to the point that some young people are not really that interested in figuring out what they're going to do with their life when they grow up because they don't think they're going to be here that long, which is pretty sad. But we need to be careful with internet, social media, search engines, algorithms. We need to be careful to consume a balanced diet of spiritual nourishment. So as we look at these seven churches of Asia in Revelation, we're not only learning about how Jesus wants us to live in the end times, but we're also learning about our attitude our posture that we have as Christians and how we discipline ourselves in the use of those things and what we allow in our mind and how much of those things we allow in our mind. Because we don't know exactly what the puzzle is going to look like when it all comes together. But we do know that Jesus will be on his throne in heaven and those who are saved by his blood will be there with him. And we can always rest in that as Christians. If you're in Christ, you are ultimately safe. It really doesn't matter what happens between now and then. There will be struggles. There will be difficulties between now and the time we're with Jesus in eternity. And that's that's part of what we're talking about today. Um, the struggles that you know might come, do come, can come, and a little bit of how to cope with those things. When I was in school studying for ministry, 
we had an entire class dedicated to the book of Revelation. And I remember, I don't think you could take it until your third or fourth year in seminary. Um, I think they did that in part to keep you in school. But the professor was quite good. And up front, I, it seems like I remember he told us something along the lines of there, you know, many things in this book you can speculate about. We'll talk about some maybes and some goodbies along the way, but what we will focus on is the things that we can know. And interestingly enough, when you start doing that with the book of Revelation and you talk about the things that aren't ambiguous, but that are clear, uh, a lot of people are kind of disappointed. And I thought I was going to go into that class and then come out having end times prophecy all sorted, but I didn't. I think students go into a class like that thinking they know what they know, and then they come out actually knowing less than they went in knowing. And I'm not trying to downplay it or, or anything end times prophecy. It's interesting. It's important, but I'm just trying to put it in perspective as we go through this. It's definitely something that needs to be balanced with the rest of scripture. So if your algorithm is only feeding you end times prophecy, if that's all you read, if that's all you look at, that's all you're interested in, um, or any other topic or doctrine for that matter, to put it politely, you're going to have a misaligned view of reality and what it means to be a Christian. And that's just a fact. We're looking at what Jesus wants us to do as we look forward to his return. And that's what we have in the instructions and the warnings given to the seven churches of Asia in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. And today we're looking at the church at Smyrna. And we're going to read about the church of Smyrna from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And this is what it says. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The first and the last, who was dead and came to life, says these things. I know your works and tribulation and poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those which you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tried and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Smyrna, Smyrna, you know, you can call them the Smyrnians, um, but I don't because it's hard to say that and keep a straight face. But Smyrna was northeast of Ephesus, but also a beautiful city uh, as Ephesus was. And it had a harbor, which made it a center of trade. It had been destroyed at some point in its history. And then um, Alexander the Great, had a vision to rebuild it, but that never actually came to fruition until after his death. It was a wealthy city, um, but the Christians were of the poor classes of people. You know, as we read about that, and John talks, or uh, Jesus talks about the poverty, John writes it down. But the Christians were of the poor classes of people, which has not been unusual throughout history. I, I mean, it, it's more so in recent, more recent history that Christians are, you know, financially kind of in the same boat as everyone else. But people who are uncomfortable and struggling are often more open to the gospel because they just are. Uh, wealth and comfort can actually be a barrier to the gospel for some. Um, Jesus talked about that. The rich man, I the needle, as you probably heard. But we might call where we might call Ephesus a loveless church. 
that we talked about last week. Smyrna is the persecuted church. And there are a couple of significant things about this church that I will bring out that are relevant to us today. The first thing I want to bring out is that when we read about Smyrna, one of the really intriguing things about this church is Jesus has nothing to say that is negative about the church of Smyrna. There's no rebuke for them. He says, I know your works, I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty. He also says you're rich, meaning in rich in God's grace, rich in the gospel. And the church is under physical hardship. Jesus says, I know your tribulation, and that's what he's talking about. Tribulation is a word that comes from a uh, a stone in uh, Roman culture that was used for threshing. It would uh, roll out grain to thresh grain. And the idea of the word tribulation is pressure. And even though a threshing stone would separate wheat and chaff through the application of pressure, the word tribulation, as we read it, as what how Jesus uses it in our passage today, carries the meaning of pressure, but not separation. So tribulation for a Christian is pressure to stop doing what you're doing. It's pressure applied to try to separate a Christian from their faith. And tribulation is the result of an unwillingness to separate from Jesus in faith. If a person would deny their faith, deny Jesus, or or run and hide, the pressure of tribulation would stop. They would escape it. And someone might say, well, a true Christian would never do that. But we need to be careful when we say things like that. If that thought comes to mind, we should probably look at the apostles when Jesus was arrested and what they did and how they scattered and how Peter, he even denied, he even knew Jesus uh, three times. But he later went on to write part of the New Testament. Jesus didn't know, he didn't disown Peter or the other apostles, even though they, they ran from the pressure. When Jesus addresses Smyrna, he, he doesn't get into, you're doing this right, you're doing that wrong like he did with Ephesus. He offers encouragement. They're encouraged to remain faithful, even in the face of persecution to the point of physical death. He says, you know, be faithful. What's happening in Smyrna is that there is a group of Jewish people who are making accusations against the Christians living there. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to leverage secular culture and government as they're able to try to shut them down and shut them up to stop the spread of the gospel message. So the Christians in Smyrna are under the pressure of tribulation. Jesus doesn't warn them against anything. He doesn't tell them to stop doing anything. But what he does do is he warns them that things are going to become more difficult for them going forward. So with that in mind, we see that Jesus says, I know your works, but he doesn't say you're doing this right or you're doing this wrong. Now, the question is, why doesn't he do that? Here's why I think that is, is because they're already doing it right. They wouldn't be under the pressure of tribulation if someone didn't want them to stop doing what they are doing. So to me, it's obvious that they are living in obedience to Jesus and they are talking about Jesus and people want them to stop doing that, hence the pressure of tribulation. There's obviously enough evidence to convict them of being 
Christians. Maybe you've heard that saying used before. And, and I know I know persecution and tribulation are scary topics, but one thing about them is they're easily avoidable. Don't speak about Jesus. Don't share the gospel. Don't talk about the Bible. And I'm, I'm sure that's probably going to come up a little more, people doing that kind of thing as we go through this series. But that's obviously not what Jesus wants us to do. But if you, you know, avoid those things, you're probably not going to be bothered by any kind of tribulation or persecution. And there are, well, a plethora of Christians who have absolutely nothing to worry about in regards to persecution because they don't do any of those things. They don't talk about the Bible. They don't talk about Jesus. They don't, you know, live in obedience to him. Um, and, you know, there's no tribulation for them because there's no evidence to convict them of being Christian. And it doesn't mean they're not saved or that Jesus is going to abandon them, but it would be hard to tell that they belong to Jesus. That's something we all need to reflect on. And I think every Christian has times like that when they're like, you know, I'm just not in the mood to, to talk about Jesus today, or, you know, I'm afraid to talk about Jesus. But if you to think about it, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Just something to reflect on. Now, the guy writing this down, John, is living in a Roman penal colony. There was obviously enough evidence to convict him of serving Jesus. You might remember we preface this series with when you finally meet Jesus face to face, how would you like that to go? In this letter to the seven churches, we have the answers to how that can be a great moment. What will it be like if you've hidden the light of Jesus, you've hidden away, you haven't talked about him, haven't talked about scripture, just haven't lived like a Christian? It's just going to be different. It's not going to be what it could be. Now, what is keeping people from living life in a way that's going to make that a, a great moment when we come face to face with Jesus? I think it's a fear of persecution and tribulation, even though in modern Western culture, I don't know where you might be listening at, but in modern Western culture, we've got it pretty good. Um, We're not persecuted. Um, I don't know, people view it differently, but when somebody just comes up on the internet and says, oh, you're dumb because you're a Christian, that's not persecution. That's just whatever. (sighs) But there is a fear of persecution and tribulation. And one of the best ways to deal with fear is to face it voluntarily. It's kind of like, almost like acceptance and commitment therapy, something you do in counseling at times. But we're going to take some time to talk about persecution and what it is, and then maybe a little bit how to face it, just in case we ever actually have to do that. And I am very public. I've become more and more that way throughout ministry. Um, Initially, I kind of avoided getting online with all this stuff, but, you know, through different circumstances, God worked it out that here we are. So a lot of things that I talk about um, when I'm teaching in church, wherever it might be, end up in this podcast um, or I put them out to the general public on social media. I actually don't do that much talking outside of preaching and teaching and social media stuff and podcasts. By the time I get all that out, I've got all my words out. But There has been a tremendous amount of positive and good things come from that. And, you know, I have to give credit where credit's due. Our communications team that I work with is amazing. They do the lion's share of the work. They do, um, 
they have the lion's share of the ideas. I'm just kind of a mouthpiece and hopefully give them some decent fodder to work with. But at the same time, you know, so many good things have come from it. We've had people come to our church. We've seen people baptized because of uh, social media, online outreach, interaction, that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I have a small but growing fan club that follows me online who don't want me to say the things I do. Just, you know, internet trolls, whatever you want to call them, who they would like to pressure me into not saying what I think needs to be said. And on average, I have probably two people a day attack me, uh, two to four to six, maybe sometimes more, sometimes through emails, sometimes through messages, um, sometimes through social media comments. (coughs) Now, personally, like I say, I wouldn't really label that as persecution. Maybe it is, you know, applied pressure. I just don't see it as that much pressure. Um, Excuse me, I need a drink of water. But recently, we've had a bigger pushback than normal. So, you know, when that happens, I'm thinking, we must be doing something right. But everyone, including you, um, and I I support this for people who aren't believers either. Uh, Everybody should speak into the marketplace of ideas, so to speak. Everyone should speak out about what you know is good and right as you're able to do so. You know, that may be, you know, one-on-one conversation, or it may be very public. But I don't think we're very courageous if we allow fear or being pressured to stop us from doing that. (coughs) Uh, I got a little itch in my throat today. That's not any good. And if we don't do it now as believers in the world we live in, which is pretty cruisy, if we don't do it now, we certainly won't do it if we are ever faced with real persecution. So what is persecution and how is it encouraged? As we face it, learn about it, how it works, what it is, I think we'll fear it less and learn to better navigate it should we ever actually have to deal with it. Now, ironically, one thing that encourages persecution is Christians being afraid of it. One thing that makes it possible and eventually prevalent is when Christians are apathetic and our love of comfort and peace uh, is more than our love for talking about Jesus. In particular, apathy towards the gospel. As Christians become apathetic and comfortable, churches become impotent. It's almost like a numbers game. People drift away from church because it's just not that big a deal. It's kind of weak and it's not really that important. Discipline and accountability aren't that important. Church becomes more about programs that serve the people inside of it, about us. It becomes more about social justice or a social justice gospel or prosperity gospel than the Great Commission and so on. And as Christian numbers um, shrink and Christian churches are weaker and our gospel witness dissipates, adversaries rise up and get stronger. So ironically, it's actually fear of persecution that causes more of it. Well, that's my thinking anyway. And as Christians become more apathetic, the secular world becomes more antagonistic and in correlation. The solution is to be courageous. Talk about your faith. Talk about Jesus. Tell others about the shed blood of Christ. Do it. And that's my opinion on how persecution comes to be is when we stop doing what Jesus wants us to do. 
And the church always grows. It always has throughout history when Christians are persecuted. It's the church grows on the blood of martyrs and it always has been that way. But what is persecution? We're in the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation chapter two today, talking about persecution in the church of Smyrna. And I think the first example of persecution is in the first book of the Bible, the interaction between God and Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, you might know the story. They both bring sacrifices to God. Abel's a shepherd, Cain is a farmer. The Bible says in Genesis chapter four that Abel brings the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. And Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. The Bible tells us that the Lord respected Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And that word respected means he looks at it with interest. He has interest in it. He respects it. And the reason for that is unclear. The Bible doesn't specifically state why that is. Now, there's a lot of speculation about it for sure, but I think I figured it out. And that is because... Cain's a vegetarian. I'm just kidding. That's probably not true. Um, There's nothing wrong with being a farmer or a vegetarian. Cain is angry because God doesn't respect his sacrifice like he did Abel's sacrifice. Cain's angry. And in this case, I think the content of the sacrifice is not that relevant. I mean, It can be, but in this case, it's not really that relevant. I think the real issue is Cain and Abel's attitude and heart condition towards their creator. Now, the content of a sacrifice can reflect that. And I think that was probably the case of what was happening here. But the content of the sacrifice isn't really the issue. It's the heart condition and the attitude of Cain and Abel as they make the sacrifice and give it to God. The heart's condition in the sacrifice makes God look upon it with interest and respect it. It's like a little kid who draws a picture for their mother and father and they scribble, scribble, I love you on a piece of paper. The paper and the crayon are irrelevant, but what it means or the heart condition behind it is what really matters. That's what's priceless about it. And I think in the case of Cain and Abel, that was the difference. And Cain, because, you know, he's already got a bad attitude, but God doesn't, look at his sacrifice in the same way he did at Abel's, and Cain gets angry at God. Cain blames God for his own poor attitude. It's God's fault that Cain's angry. That's how he views it. But God says, if you do the right thing, you'll be accepted. When God says that, he's not even talking about his sacrifice, but but Cain himself being accepted. God is telling Cain, you know, change your attitude and you'll be accepted. Change the condition of your heart, your mind, and you'll be accepted. He's basically telling Cain to repent. Look at yourself, what you think, examine yourself, change your mind, change your attitude, agree with what God says is true. And if you do what is right, you will be uplifted before God without shame. You'll be accepted. God says, if you don't do that, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to dominate you, but you must rule over it. So for Cain, sin is crouching at his door and it desires to dominate him. Now, when, it, when I talked about this yesterday, um, 
in church service. I was uh, probably a little more tactful, you know, different people, age groups, things like that involved. So I'm, you know, try to say things a little more tactfully, but I may not be quite, I might be more PG-13 in the podcast. But sin is compared to a wild animal crouching at the door. It's, it's just waiting to pounce on Cain and devour him. And that the desire that God says its desire is to dominate you. That's like a sexual desire, a sexual longing. And that's how he describes sin. There's a wild predator crouching at Cain's door with a strong desire to dominate him, like, like a sexual desire to have its way with Cain. And God tells Cain, you need to rule it or it's gonna dominate you. It's gonna, it's gonna have its way with you. It's gonna take advantage of you. You need to change the attitude of your heart and mind and agree with what God says or sin is going to dominate you. It's gonna have its way with you. But Cain doesn't want to. Cain doesn't do introspection. And the problem's somewhere else, with someone else, not with Cain. And when you think about that, that is so applicable to so many people that we might interact with, even ourselves often. You know, it's the problem somewhere else. It's not with me. Um, Cain sees God as the problem, not his own heart and mind. And I heard someone say, it's kind of like this, like Cain is putting God on trial, as ridiculous as that sounds. It's it's kind of true. It's a it's a kangaroo court mock trial. Cain doesn't have the authority to put God on trial, and he's already passed judgment before the trial even starts. But that that's kind of what Cain does. Cain finds God guilty for the attitude of his own heart and mind, and Cain can't pass judgment on God. And he can't pass any kind of sentence on God. He doesn't have the authority to do that, doesn't have the ability to do that. There's nothing that Cain can do to God except maybe hurt the one whose sacrifice God respects. Kind of like, it's almost like the way uh, Satan attacks Adam and Eve to get to God. Cain can hurt the one who reminds him of his own wrong attitude and actions. So he passes sentence on Abel. He murders him. That is persecution and, you know, in a nutshell, for lack of a better way to put it, but the gospel message that Christ died for our sins, that he rose again on the third day, according to the scripture, it confronts us in a similar way that God confronted Cain. Repent change your mind and agree with God. He says you're sinful. You need a savior. He's provided that savior in his son, Jesus Christ. If you don't accept what God says, sin is crouching at your door and it's, it desires to dominate you and it will if you allow it to. It's gonna have its way with you and you will remain its prisoner and will suffer the consequences of sin and hell for eternity. Christian persecution is similar to the story of Cain and Abel. Someone's angry with God for whatever reason it may be. Um, if you've interacted with people like that, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. They find guilty, God guilty of some kind of wrongdoing. It's always God's fault. God's doing something wrong. But what they don't want to believe or understand is that God is the final and ultimate moral authority. And he can't be wrong. We need to adjust to him. But they blame God for their own bad attitude. Why does God allow this? Why does God do that? If God is good, why do bad things happen? Why doesn't God do what I think he should do? 
I'm not the problem. God is the problem. You ever hear anybody like that? Um, and I can't carry out a sentence on God. There's nothing I can really do to him. I can't attack him. So I'll take my frustration out on Abel. And in this scenario, the persecutors act like Cain and the persecuted Christians are like Abel. And that, that shows us something to remember as we interact with different people. Remember, it's, a, it's about people hating God. Often, you know, someone who hates God probably claims that he doesn't exist or they don't believe in him, whatever. But why do you hate someone that doesn't exist? That's why you hate him, because he does exist. And Jesus said, the world hated you because it hated me first. They persecute me, they're gonna persecute you. And in the face of persecution, we can, you know, one of the ways we can deal with that, if you are, you know, maybe you're struggling, maybe people are nasty to you and people have different tolerance levels for that kind of stuff. But in the face of persecution, one of the ways to deal with that is we can be grateful for what we have. We can be grateful for what God has shown us. We can be grateful for our Savior, Jesus. We can be grateful uh, for the riches we have in Christ, like the church at Smyrna. Um, I had had someone attacking me recently and I was looking at their life and I was looking at my life and I was like, man, I, you know, if I had your life, I would probably be grumpy too. I look at my wife and my kids and my home and I think, man, I'm, I'm so blessed. I'm so grateful for what I have. I'm so grateful for Jesus. And yeah, it, it, it just makes things better. Now, one more thing that is an encouragement for those who may be persecuted. As we finish up, Jesus says to the persecuted church in Smyrna, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, we don't want to read too much into the tribulation for 10 days or, or we'll miss the point. It just says what it says, tribulation for 10 days. The point we can take away from, you know, Jesus saying you'll have tribulation for 10 days is that there is a time limit on persecution. There's a time limit on evil. It's going to come to an end. And Jesus has set that time. We might not know what it is. We'll have to wait for the whole puzzle to come together before we understand all of that. But there's a time limit. Now, for someone who is truly suffering, 10 minutes can be a very long time, let alone 10 days. But even the worst persecution that Christians have ever or will ever face is insignificant in light of eternity in heaven with Jesus. And that's difficult now for someone, especially someone who's suffering. That's so hard now because we can't fully comprehend that. We won't fully comprehend that until we are there with Jesus. But when we are there, we will know that to be true. And that's why Jesus says, remain faithful. There's a reward to come. Keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. And, you know, sometimes I think people read these verses and it, it's been read as if you, you know, if you don't remain faithful unto death, God won't accept you. But I think that's probably even been leveraged to manipulate people in nefarious ways at different times. But the problem with that is that's a works-based salvation and it's contradictory to the message of the gospel. Jesus accomplished everything necessary for salvation on the cross. It's not like God's going to kick you out if you struggle to remain faithful or even you know, deny him like Peter did at some point, but it's going to be so worthwhile if you remain faithful. 
And a big part of that is having the faith to believe that. Believe that, you know, whatever's going on now, whatever I'm going through, the difficulties I'm facing today, there's still things that I can be grateful for. And one of the big things I can be grateful for is knowing that as difficult as life is right now, whatever it may be, eternity in heaven with Jesus, when I'm there looking back on this, it's going to be so insignificant. It just doesn't really matter. And then act on that faith. Be strong. Be courageous. Talk about Jesus. Talk about the gospel. It's worth it. You want to do something courageous today? Go talk about Jesus. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let me know what you think in the comments. Please consider subscribing and sharing this with someone who might find it helpful. 